This is the second Sunday after Christmas. Most of the time, we don't, uh, or often, we don't get to preach on the second Sunday because Epiphany comes up January the 6th, and there's, no, there's only one Sunday after Christmas. So it affords the opportunity to preach about the readings uh, that we read on the second Sunday. So let me say a couple of introductory things. My predicate for the sermon this morning is the collect that Father Emerson sang at the beginning of the liturgy, which I will read to you. And then I intend to speak about all three readings to do a, an exegesis, something they tell you in seminary never to do when you preach a sermon, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then to say some things to you about how these readings relate to, to the affirmations that I speak of every Christmas some important things about how we understand this season and why it has so much power for Anglican Christians. The opening prayer for the liturgy on this Sunday is, O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity your Son, Jesus Christ. So when we think about how we uh, might understand the restoration of our dignity and what a wonderful promise that is. I think I mentioned last Sunday, you know, there's a difference between the Catholic view and the um, Reformed view of what happened in the Garden of Eden. The Catholic view suggests that at the, in the Garden of Eden at the fall, human beings lost their supernatural endowment, but that they were able still to know the good and to do the good. The Reformed view, at least uh, many Reformers would say, at the fall in the Garden of Eden, we blew it. There was no way back. No way back, except through the mighty works of Jesus Christ. And our human reason and experience uh, is always suspect, and never are we able to truly know the good. I don't uh, need to tell you the view that I prefer, I hope. There's a danger in believing the first one, which is, is that you can have a little bit too much confidence in your own ways of being and relating and thinking, for sure. But it is possible when we speak about restoration and the initial default position, which is that God made the cosmos, was pleased with his work and called it good, that that didn't completely go away at the fall. So let's talk a little bit about Jeremiah. You know, if you want to get the blues, a good place to do it is to read from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. But today, we read from a fairly upbeat part of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is, uh, there. This, what we read today uh, is something that was written about 100 years after the events that, that are being described occurred. And what we're talking about here is the return 
from exile. Restoration. And Jeremiah is speaking about a fairly upbeat message for him, actually, about the promises of God being present to the people of God and that God's restorative purposes are present to them in this historical event. And in fact, if they had been far-seeing or realized some things about the great tradition of which they are a part, God's restorative processes are always at work in the cosmos. And as they live greater lives of intention as a community of faith, they will be able to live into this restoring work of God. You and I might interpret this text in two ways, both in our terms of our corporate institutional understanding of our role in every age and how we now become instruments of God's restorative reconciling work, but also in internal terms and how we understand that sense of lostness and alienation that often we feel and the sure confidence that Jeremiah gives us that God's restorative powers are available to affect in a positive way our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And that part of the promise of God becoming a human being, God's affirmation of being part of history, is that God can affect your personal history as well as our personal history together as community. So Jeremiah is giving us the message about restoration, about return from exile, about alienation being uh, done away with, about that sense of lostness going away, and some satisfaction that we have gained some insight into how we wish to proceed in our lives, both together and personally, individually. In the reading from Ephesians, we have the looking ahead to the season of Epiphany. Uh, Father Thomas Keating, in his books, uh, Open Heart, Open Mind, The Contemplative Dimension of the Gospel, The Mystery of Christ, his book on the Eucharist, speaks about Christmas as the celebration of the presence of Christ to the church. It is our present, our gift that we meditate and give thanks for during the Christmas tide, the 12 days of Christmas, and Epiphany being the celebra celebration of the manifestation of Christ to the world. In other words, this manifestation had for the early Christians and the biblical writers universal significance. And the result of this universal significance means that as the result of the Incarnation, God's plan for the cosmos has now become more apparent. And for Paul, in this reading from Ephesians, he means that God's unifying work is always moving through the people of God and that it is part of God's purposes that apparently disparate groups can come together in unity. And for Paul, that meant, of course, that Jews and Gentiles were going to be able to get along together and to be together. And so that we understand now that God's welcome does, is not just made to the people of the covenant, to people who believe themselves to be special, 
but that God's saving embrace is available to everyone. You know, the eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus heard in his message something that was important to them, and that was they could connect the dots. They could listen to uh, the reading of their own sacred literature as Jews and say to themselves, you know what, if we'd have just had our ears open here and our eyes open, we would have seen that this announcement being made so clear in the person of Jesus Christ has always been a thread that has run through our tradition, that God's welcome is available to everyone, and that the promise of the great prophets like Isaiah are saying to us that, you know, God's presence in the world is going to make the hills low, make the valleys level, and make our roads straight, both as a community of faith and as individuals. Uh, Nancy and I have been watching, once again, this old series on PBS called Civilization with Kenneth Clark. And Kenneth Clark, in the, in the episode about the Romantic period, or Rousseau, said, you know, this is the first time in the history of Western civilization that anybody ever looked at a mountain and believed that it was actually something that was beautiful and they could look at and want to climb. Before that, everybody in Western civilization said, how come we've got to contend with these mountains? Why do we have to go over them? So you'd look at the Matterhorn, I guess, in 1576 and say, this is a drag. How are we going to get through it? Right? Instead of somehow seeing the hand of God at work. So I'm thinking about the ancients. And I wonder if they thought to themselves this process of leveling of the natural order was something that was desirable. Maybe you and I would say, because we're deeply influenced by this romantic view of the, of the earth, that we would say, we're glad that these mountains are here, but we have the sure confidence that we can climb them and come down again. That they're part of the way things are. And they're part, perhaps, of God's plan for us as we move forward. And you can take that, maybe, as a metaphor for all kinds of things going on in your life. Paul in Ephesians is saying today, that the universal implications of the incarnation, God becoming a human being, is that we now see made present in a human person God's unifying influence. The gospel uh, affords the opportunity to talk about, to preach about Matthew, because Matthew comes up in the Christmas cycle of readings, but we focus most of the time, and if we don't have the second. We focus on Luke, and we focus on John's Gospel last Sunday, the Johannine Prologue, the introduction to John's Gospel. But today, we have a number of choices uh, from Matthew's Gospel that we could read. And I chose to read the one where Joseph is told to take Jesus to escape from King Herod and the slaughter of the innocents and to take Mary and Jesus and to go to Egypt. And the reason is uh, we can understand some things about Matthew's gospel and why it's so important. Matthew uh, was a Jewish Christian, probably was a rabbi. He was in a Christian synagogue that had become 80% Gentile. He wrote his gospel in about 85 AD. 
and he was dealing in his uh, pastoral situation on the ground with uh, a plural congregation at this point of a variety of different views. But he also believed that his understanding of why this all fits together is an important thing to speak about and to write about for the future. So for Matthew, there are a couple of things that are important to him. First of all, he wants to connect Jesus to the great halcyon days of Israel. So he connects Jesus in the genealogy that he creates and uh, has him be related to King David, the great king of the great golden age. And he's also at pains to say that he believes that in his words and in his works, Jesus embodied in a human person the new Torah. So that meant that Jesus, in his teaching and in his preaching, now took the Torah that had been given to the people of Israel and has now revised it, so to speak, and has created a new way of understanding the law and has said that the operative principle in all human interaction, the supreme law is the one of love, love for God and love for neighbor. And so in his infancy narrative, he wishes to have Jesus model something that is very important, and that is the new Moses. Who comes out of Egypt a long, long time ago? Moses. Who brings the Torah in the tradition? Moses. Joseph takes Jesus to Egypt. And when it's safe, he brings the new Torah out of Egypt to Palestine. And so Matthew was saying for him and for his constituency, this fits like a hand in a glove. We see once again God's reconciliation, restorative purposes being brought to bear on our history. The affirmations that I speak about every Christmas tide are the goodness of our humanity, the fact that each of us can achieve the highest of our human potential, that it is possible for Christian people to be joyful, and that as the result of those three things, you and I are called to be ambassadors for peace. The goodness of our humanity is what is described today in the Collect, and that process of restoration in God's plan for the cosmos and the sending of Jesus now brings to us this possibility that for every human being we can affirm our goodness. God made the creation, including human beings, was pleased with his work and he called it good. And that means, of course, in our behavior and our outlook that the default position for Christian people needs to be uh, that we affirm each other's goodness as the basic principle. This is a, a pretty idealistic thing to say sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to believe in the goodness of other human beings, the way they behave. Sometimes it's pretty hard for us to believe in our own goodness because of the way we behave. 
And yet, uh, in Christmastide, we affirm the goodness of our humanity. And what flows from that is that every human person is able, as it says in the Collect today, to in some way share the divine life. We are not God, but our true self is God, as Father Thomas Keating says. So part of the achievement of the highest of our human potential isn't uh, associating ourselves with some movement or organization that's part of what was called the human potential movement. It has to do with living into the promises of God and becoming who you already are in many ways. You know? One of the things about our human potential is that you and I are called in, in some way to pursue in all aspects of our life excellence. The, the, the Greek word that Aristotle used um, that we translate as virtue, arete, means excellence. And in his mind, when he was thinking about virtuous people, he was thinking about people who certainly in their public life and their relational life together always sought the good, not just for themselves, but for other people. And what attached to that kind of behavior was a certain virtue. And that you and I are called in some ways to pursue that kind of relational excellence in our lives. That that is something that, that we're called to do. And part of the way in which we achieve the highest of our human potential. Being a joyful person means, of course, that in the course of those, that knowledge, the serenity that comes from it, that it's possible for us to believe that the things that aren't clear to us now, the things that we find hard to understand or we simply can't see a way forward are going to come clear. And they come clear by virtue of us cooperating with it. I think, I know, you know, there's a lot of times I just sit around thinking I'm going to get some bolt of inspiration that's finally going to solve this problem for me. Right? I'm go oh, you know. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do. But most of the time, for each of us, it's pretty heavy sledding. And so we sometimes have to, in hindsight, look back and see how God has operated and so on. And that's cause for joy, isn't it? Because sometimes it may mean, without sounding too cynical, oh, I made it. Right? I got through that in that, in that sense. In Christmas tide, this joyfulness is a bit more upbeat and a bit more powerful than that. But it certainly is part of how we understand the affirmations of Christmas, the presence we get from God. And finally, when we speak about being ambassadors for peace, it means two things. Every one of us as Christian people should be concerned about peace in the world. And we ought to be concerned and associate ourselves with organizations and causes who are laboring for that to be so. You know? It, it is not a good thing as a culture, as a country, to be driven by fear. It is not a good thing to believe that force is the best way to solve things. That's true. But the other thing that we need to understand about peace is that it has to do also with our internal spiritual, mental, and emotional states. 
And so if you feel that you, you believe in your basic goodness and you believe that you can achieve the highest of your human potential, it means that you can, you can do some work internally on yourself. And you are able in some way to bring, bring peace to your warring members. You know what Paul says about this? He is at war with his members, he says sometimes. You know, the thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I do. You know? What's changed? You know, you can become a cynic about all this, can't you? Or you can see that you make some kind of progress. The priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona, many years ago, said Christian men and women are inchers. We make little progress in snippets, you know. Sometimes it may seem three steps forward and two steps back. So it's easy to think, well, why try? But it's also possible to say that the peace of Christ is available to us to bring some species of serenity and calm. Now, Jesus would have used the Hebrew word shalom to speak about peace. And I didn't put in the text of my sermon all of the meanings of the word shalom that I read on Christmas, and there are a number of them, over 20, that, which wasn't even a complete list. One of them is uh, the absence of anxiety and fear. So if the peace of Christ is at work in you, if you have even a momentary uh, ability to see more clearly, it brings a little bit of calmness my New Testament professor in seminary, the guy who said it isn't important what the Bible says, important what the Bible means, the year I was the uh, first-year student there, a junior, he had just been awarded his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. And he and I were having a conversation about uh, some things that he wanted, uh, some, a paper that I had written. And I don't know how it came up, but he was talking about going to his oral examination at the University of Chicago for the PhD. You know, you're the final, well, this is or not, you know. And so he's there and he was being, the University of Chicago is a substantial place for New Testament studies and the people who were there on the faculty were substantial people, Robert M. Grant and, and uh, so on. And he said, you know, when I went there, I was so anxious and worried and when the first question was asked me, I realized I just knew the answer. After all of this being tied in knots, I knew it and the next question came and I knew it and I finally got to the point after about a half dozen, I thought, when are they gonna get to the hard questions? Now, I don't know if you've ever been through an experience like that, but if you have, you know what that feels like. It feels like a million bucks, you know? But it isn't just because you were lucky. It's because you were ready. You were prepared. So when we think about the peace of Christ operating, it may have something to do about our cooperation with the peace of God working in each one of us, and that's what we're called to do. And you know, I tell you all the time that what happens, in my view, when you relate to other people and your faith isn't coming up here as using an ex explicit religious vocabulary 
and you're certainly not engaged in any active converting process, but over time, if somebody would see you, they may say, how do I get what you have? I've noticed and watched you, and I'd like to know what it is that, that you have that makes, that, that I admire, that I would wish uh, to be able to incorporate into my habits of being and relating, and then you have an opportunity for some of the finest missionary work that can be done to assist somebody else in the affirmation of their own goodness and the achievement of their highest, the highest of their human potential. So this week, take seriously your role as an agent of God. Give thanks for the four affirmations. Know that God's restorative purposes are there for you to recover any sense of alienation and lostness that you might have from time to time, and to be able in some ways to know that that can be overcome, and that sooner or later you're going to find a way to do that. It's the best Christmas present of all. Amen.